Welcome to Screen Talk, a New Words Weekly Podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the Executive Editor-in-Chief Critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson, our Editor-at-Large. And Ann, this is a major episode for a lot of reasons, mostly related to movies that we can talk about, like Mank and Borat, but also because it's our Halloween edition and the last recording before that crazy election thing happened. So how are you holding up with all this stuff? I'm feeling a little bit beat up. I, I, I have to say I've been so busy at work at IndieWire that I have been able to, um, in some ways, uh, keep my election anxiety at bay. That doesn't mean it isn't there. It haunts my dreams. I've never had such weird apocalyptic <laughs> dreams. But um, um, And I am as anxious as I've ever been. But I'm just putting my, my head down and, and doing a lot. There's a lot going on. Yeah, you sent a lot of postcards, though. We both did. So that's something. You haven't I been did. totally blind to it. I mean, that's no, the thing. Everybody's I'm not done blind their part. to it. Believe me, I, I watch and pay attention. But at a certain point, you um, a little Donald Trump goes a long way. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'd say put that on a T-shirt, but I'd rather not even hear that name <laughs> after Tuesday. So one step at He's a time. He's like Voldemort. <laughs> oh, God. That's the problem is that we, we're so used to movie villains. When a real one comes along, we don't know what to do. But uh, we, we have, have a to lot vote of, is the point. Now, what are you going to be doing on Election Day? I'll be watching the returns with uh, some, you know, close friends and relatives and stuff, but nothing. In the same added. house? I mean, yeah, it was like just a couple people, not a party. I mean, it, uh, for a lot of reasons. But in, it, four years ago, I think there was this anticipation that it was time to, to party. And even without the pandemic, I don't think people would be creating that context this year just because it's that's not the ritual anyway. And we don't really know exactly what's going to happen on Tuesday. I'm optimistic. I'm not blindly optimistic, but I, I, I'm curious to see what the experience is like for people because it is sort of like a almost like a solemn viewing party. It's not something that I think most people are doing out no. of I, I hardly because we all have PTSD from from last year. I don't know about you, but I, I had a horrible, uh, de- desperate experience and woke up in the morning weeping and woke up in the morning having to talk my daughter down. You know, these, yeah, are, these uh, are real things. Yeah, we had it. We, I mean, we and were, we've suffered through four years. Now the, yeah. the stakes couldn't be higher. So we, I, but I have, uh, we have reason for optimism. I I was in the Colbert studio uh, for his Showtime special, crushed by the electoral map that they were projecting on the ceiling and unable to really use my phone or, or interact much at all for a large duration of that night, which is a bizarre Kafkaesque kind of yeah, experience on its very own. Strange. So I won't be doing that. So I know at the very least <laughs> I'll be, be with able your to, loved ones. I'll be yeah. texting my loved ones. Basically, my well, that's plan. something is to be in touch with all my friends and family by by text. I, I, I don't like it that I'm going to be sitting alone in my living room experiencing a very anxiety-ridden night, but I will be in touch. Yeah, there are many ways, as we've learned in the last few months especially, there are many ways to be connected with people without being in the same room as them. And last night or the night before we, we, we were recording now, and in, in any rate, on Thursday night, there, there was a kind of a virtual premiere of sorts. So we got that experience with, with Mank, although it wasn't exactly what was planned because that, that was supposed to happen on Tuesday night with a Q&A and the World Series screwed all that up. So there wasn't a Q&A, but 
we finally got a chance to see Mank. And I think that's a nice distraction from the craziness of what we're in right now, because as much as this is a, a movie about, you know, wealthy white men in power or whatever, it's certainly not the kind of conundrum that we're facing today. It's a very different kind of, of movie than, say, Chicago 7 in that respect. But I have to say, I mean, as, as the quote-unquote sort of cinephile set that this movie is designed to appeal to, I was, I was very satisfied with the way that this movie came out. It's, uh, it's a very Are you thrilling... allowed to review it? I'm not, but I am allowed to tell you that I'm very excited with the way it came out because I think it's a, a thrilling way of looking at Hollywood history. And let me put it, put it to you this way. Once again, we've seen the, um, the tactic of the social sentiment embargo versus the review embargo. And I guess this stream of consciousness response to the, to the movie may fall into the former camp because uh, here we are talking about the movie. What did you think of, uh, I mean, let me, let me ask you this, and how did Mank um, compare with your expectations for it as a significant Oscar player? I'm, I'm pausing because, <laughs> because- um, Diplomacy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I had a lot of uh, anticipation for this, I have to say. I haven't been as excited about seeing something in a long time. And uh, those of you uh, who know me at all know that I'm, you know, I'm the original, you know, film school grad who studied Orson Welles and, uh, and read Pauline Kael and know all the backstory and, and uh, you know, know all the movies that this, this movie is referencing. So I was, you know, I'm the perfect target audience. And, I, and in that way, I will say that the um, Academy the, especially the the older uh, academy, uh, which is still the dominant uh, group, um, it's still dominated by older white men, and uh, and this movie is dominated uh, by older white men. But um, what you have is this: these two extraordinary performances that will be recognized by uh, Gary Oldman as uh, Herman J. Mankiewicz, alcoholic screenwriter, uh, trying to. Um, finally do uh, a movie that he can be proud of, write a movie that he could be happy to have done. And then, you know, his best work. And then uh, the the great Amanda Seyfried. I have to say, she surprised me. We know Gary Oldman. We know he just won an Oscar uh, playing Winston Churchill. This time, um, the one who, who stands toe to toe with him and really gives uh, a surprising, uh, nuanced, uh, um, very interesting uh portrayal of Marion Davies is, is Amanda Seyfried. What do you think? I think she, well, I think Seyfried's always been a, a, an actress worth looking at. You know, the last time she gave us some, a really fascinating sort of enigmatic performance with a lot of layers to it was not that long ago. I would say it was in first performed, but it was a much more minor. That's true. I for, that's a very so good, that's a good, easy, that was a good performance. But it's easy to forget about stuff like and that. And not. And, she was good and yeah, sure, sure yeah. exactly. I think she is often underutilized by the Mama material. Mia, right. What, what's, what, I, I refer to this performance as the shitty, shit-eating grin kind of role. Like it's, there, there's like the, the top layer of it where she's, she's this actress who's always smiling and projecting a kind of calm serenity. But then you can tell there's also this calculation and, and also a, kind of a fieriness to her, especially once she realizes what Mank has done in terms of using her relationship uh, with with uh, Hearst as the foundation for Citizen Kane. 
I think the other thing that that's really interesting about this movie is that the Kane factor, I mean, you referred to Pauline Kael, the whole Raising Kane essay that she wrote. I'm sure people are going to bring that up a lot. I don't know how much this movie really is about Citizen Kane, the movie, so much as it is the ideas that Citizen Kane tapped into, the way in which he was inspired to write this movie as sort of a, a reaction to aspects of Hollywood and uh, and wealth and, and um, you know, the 1%, basically, and and the, the kind of impact that has on America. You know, he originally was called America. It's the name of the movie. That is what this is about. Orson Welles is not some key character. It's not a behind the scenes of the film shoot. And I don't no, think it even no, no, takes no, that no, no. away. No, it it's very much about Hollywood. And, and it, it, it also is about politics. And uh, according to this very good interview that Mark Harris did with David Fincher in, in New York Magazine, um, it, was, it was Fincher who, uh, on the one hand, wanted to honor his father who wrote this script and was yeah. very much of a, an obsessed cinephile and raised his son as such, where they would be debating movies uh, over the dinner table while, they, while he was growing up. He pulled the, the script away with the help of Eric Roth, who gets a producer credit. He pulled, and that's interesting because he's honoring his father. He's giving him sole credit for this. Right. I did notice the sole credit. It's right. notable. And, and Eric Roth, who, of course, wrote Forrest Gump and any number of other, uh, including Benjamin Button, the Fincher movie. So Eric Roth took a producing credit, but he helped write this. So they pulled it back away from the... Uh, from that Citizen Kane, uh, uh, who's, who takes credit for the movie kind of, of brouhaha, which, which Jack Fincher was, was obsessed with apparently. And they pulled in this other uh, political story, which resonates today um, in terms of people being fed a, a fake narrative uh, about what's going on. But it, it you know, uh, Louis B. Mayer, I actually thought um, uh, Aldous, uh, Arliss Howard was very good as Louis B. Mayer. That was a good, a good, a good, uh, there's a lot of supporting players who don't register, but Charles Dance as Hearst and um, yeah. Arliss Howard do register. I'd they say. are kind of eerie. I think a lot will be made about just how much context is helpful for being able to, you know, sort of work on the wavelength of this movie. I mean, some people are going to say, well, you know, Louis B. Mayer, now we know in, in a post Me Too kind of environment was a pretty scummy guy in certain ways Absolutely. that are not a part of this movie. But they are a part of the world of the movie if you really think about, you know, it's not necessarily the relationship that he had with with Mank, so should it be in the movie? That, that kind of stuff is going to come up a lot, I think, in terms of what's shown and what's not shown with respect to the world that they're building out here. And it's but in terms of um, sort of analyzing the movie and in, ter in terms of its Oscar prospects, and I look forward, Eric, to going through this movie in vivid detail once we're allowed yeah. to actually do that, because um, there's plenty to deconstruct and plenty to discuss. And the filmmaking itself is, is of course, uh, extraordinary. Um, my question is, uh, in spite of the uh, very uh, upbeat reaction on film Twitter, which, as you know, reflects nothing, <laughs> really, <laughs> it's really not real. Um, uh, I, I really, uh, I have to say this really, the, he, to the extent that, that, that Fincher insisted on making this a, a, uh, an homage to old school filmmaking, um, 
as uh, it's it's very critical of Hollywood. That's not that's that part we can we can say it, it's it's but but the but it, it is an homage to the filmmaking techniques of old Hollywood, and he he mimics them, and uh, and that is is a I think an issue for uh, a, a wider audience for this film. It will limit. Oh sure, they're, the they're going to be they're going to have a bit of a hard time figuring out, which is why I think the the way in which the media talks about this film is going to be a key aspect of its life to some degree. I mean, it's not like say the artist in the sense that somebody with not, who doesn't have a deep understanding. That of was a crowd pleaser. Yeah. But also like you didn't need a deep understanding of Hollywood in the silent era to, to be able to kind of engage with this movie on like an emotional level. Whereas this one, I mean, the more, you know, the more fun it is, really. You have to be comfortable. You have to be comfortable in the world that this movie's creating. And that means loving black and white movies. It means loving movies that were made in 1940s and 30s. It means um, not being put off by a a score by uh, Atticus Ross and, and, uh, oh God, I'm blanking. What are their names? The, 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 the Nine Inch Nails guys, Trent Reznor yeah. and Atticus yeah. Ross. Reznor, Reznor and Ross. These guys did a um, a very Bernard Herrmann score. Bernard Herrmann did the score for Citizen Kane. It's a great score, and you can hear them referring to it. But but that kind of score is really not what movies use nowadays. And it, it that particularly felt archaic to me. I really dug the score. I mean, I don't know how, maybe I'm blowing an embargo on saying that. He dug the score, Embargo Breach. But what's what's cool about it is that it, it, it keeps shifting and changing. And yes, it is an homage, but it's not like a Tarantino homage or something like that. It did feel like it was almost like you were you were watching a movie that was made in that era to some degree. It doesn't feel very meta or something. And that's, that's really cool. I mean, it does, it, it just, it, it's a very different kind of homage than I think we've seen before. So. Well, I, the movie are, that it conjures up and this is not, a, and this is way more successful. Believe me, I'm not saying it's like this, but it does. The one that, that tried to do this was Soderbergh's The Good German. Yeah, that's a terrible point of comparison for for the but prospects of this movie, but that's, it's much it, it, better it's than a, that. It's a da- it's a dangerous thing to try to do. Yes, well, I think that so you're saying that this is this clearly it limits the audience, but Netflix can push it out better than probably a lot of people would be able to do in that respect. Though at the same time, it's an interesting question of how how much people will invest in watching you know a two hour plus movie like this as opposed to say giving it a shot for some period of time. Well, Fincher, so- look when they when they when Netflix jumped into original content, what did they do? They made House of Cards with David Fincher. And one of the reasons that they did that was that their algorithms told them that a Kevin Spacey (laughs) series directed by David Fincher would hit the sweet spot with their audience. So there's a Fincher audience that's going to Oh, and Mindhunter too. Yeah, I mean, that's... Mindhunter also did really well on the service. So that is a good question. And I'm sure that there will be a a fascinating campaign in terms of 
what kind of films can surface on Netflix that might help contextualize this experience for you? Because some people might want to go on that journey. And if they do, if it's a portal to films they haven't seen before, that that's kind of cool too. I'm mean, what I haven't done and I will probably do in the months. We ahead both is, need to look at Citizen Kane again. Uh, exactly. There exactly. are some shots that are definitely straight. There's the, for example, the, the uh, initial shot of Orson Welles, which is from behind his neck with like dark shadows on his neck. And you just hear his, voice you know behind his head that is a total uh steal um oh and there's a rose there's a rosebud shot there's a uh the the snow globe gets a a shout out right um so that'll be fun to dig through we'll we'll geek out like crazy about that but setting aside the will general audiences like it it's an interesting divide between that and the academy right because normally the academy is the target sweet spot because the academy is cinephiles that's what they are that's why i mean not all cinephiles is relative there is (laughs) a mainstream side of the academy that will not respond to this you know the executives the the maybe the marketing people you know i'm not i don't mean to lump everyone in one in one space but there will be people who won't respond to this but but for the most part especially on the craft side the directors, Craft the writers, is and all the crafts, they're going to go, they're going to be uh, salivating over this. So the, the production design, the cinematography, the costumes, the costumes. Is, there's one costume that Marion Davies wears that where you see her bare back and, and these fluttering uh, shoulder uh ruffles it, it's just stunning I, I i have to say just for that one costume alone i'm looking forward to watching it again but the other thing that's kind of interesting at this juncture is that we have a wide range of movies gunning for the oscar i mean a couple of weeks ago you were saying chicago seven and there's no mad land and now i think we have to talk about borat right changing the narrative <laughs> this is this is so I uh, as you know Eric I I was not in advance uh looking at Borat as a potential Oscar <laughs> oh, I contender know. And, <laughs> you did not believe me <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I watched it and recognized immediately that because it had this political uh uh mission uh, very heartfelt and if you see um um <laughs> if you see Sasha Baron Cohen on the circuit and he's been everywhere, you recognize much more than usual that he's actually allowing himself to be interviewed and with his own accent. Yeah. He's sincere. He's uh, absolutely consumed with anxiety as we all are about the election. And Borat is definitely designed to throw people into a situation where they're forced to contend with the realities that are, that are out there. And, and uh, I think it successfully uh, brilliantly uh, does that. And the Academy has rewarded even the original Borat with a screenplay nomination in the past. An adapted screenplay nomination is a likelihood here. And he seems to be more interested in Oscars than we might've thought because he's putting himself up for best actor now for this as opposed because he's he's allowing himself to compete with the rest of the cast of Chicago 7 and supporting actor um so that's a possibility we, yeah we don't know exactly the numbers but it's amazon says it's doing very well in the service it certainly did stir up the news cycle with the whole giuliani craziness right. and it is worth pointing out that one of the things that comes up when you're running an awards campaign is talking about you know 
teaching people about the, the craft, the filmmaking element that is so distinctive here. And the filmmaking element is a great story to talk about all the different ways they have hidden cameras, the way they explained what they were up to, how he is playing the Borat character in disguise as other people. I mean, he's at a march for this crazy gun riot thing, rally thing, right? Playing uh, Borat disguised as this hillbilly singer, you know, it's like the layers of performance there are, are remarkable. And he's been doing this for 20 years, but to tell That's that story thing. in Oscar When you season, see him, I know, when you see him, um, um, when you get, when he does interviews and he just drops into the Borat voice for a quick, you see that he, these, that the character is so deep inside of him yeah. that it's effortless for him to just become yeah. Borat. You know. And I think also that there's a there's a degree of empathy driving what he does that's often lost in the kind of subversive craziness of Agreed. it or the puerile element of it. But in this Agreed. one, you know, the, the movie ends with a plea to vote. It's it's making a very specific comment at the very end about America's war on science and stuff. It's it's the most political overtly political thing he's done. So I think you pair that with the Chicago seven Abby Hoffman factor and it it, it all kind of seems to work in harmony. Absolutely. And it, it, it only uh, the, what he's doing, though, which by 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 not running his, by not going after his uh, Abby Hoffman role in lead, which I thought they were going to do, frankly, what he's doing is robbing his co-stars because, I mean, there's no guarantee. I mean, he you know, they have it's to a go spotlight up factor. The one night in Miami. Yeah. Remember that spotlight. It was just Mark Ruffalo and the one woman. Um McAdams. So, so you have this, you have this situation where, um, where the, where, you know, people like Jeremy Strong and Franklin Jella, you know, are going to get robbed uh, because it will be Sasha Baron Cohen who gets the, the, the one, the, the, if, if there's one, and if there's two, maybe it, it will be Yahya Abdul Mateen the second because, oh, yeah, because he, he's so good. Um, but they're well, it's competing a, it's a with the one throat. night in Miami guys. They're competing <laughs> yeah. with a lot of other people. Bill hey, Murray, at least, you know. at least there's a real competition going on. I mean, it's a cutthroat business, and he's doing what's best for him over what's best for a bunch of people who may or may not get nominated or win. So, I mean, I don't. Well, it don't appears to be that. egalitarian. It appears to be, you know, hey, throw them all into the same pot. But in reality. <clears throat> he's giving himself an opportunity to be, <laughs> be nominated for best actor. He should, he should be. He should be. I, I mean, I can't wait to keep talking about this movie. It's, I mean, obviously we'll see what happens on Tuesday and how that changes the context of things, but it's certainly one of the more charged, um, you know, of the narrative and setting aside docs It's certainly political docs. It's the most political, um, uh, contemporary sets. Look, if there uh, was ever, uh, absolutely. If there was ever a time, <laughs> If there was ever a time for a Borat movie to be taken seriously yes. at the Oscars, this is it. <laughs> yes, exactly. That should seal the deal right there. And they've got people working on it. And we didn't even talk about Maria Bakalova, this incredible Yeah, yeah, she uh, could be discovery. nominated. And he's talking her up, too. I yes, thought he, he had a pure political mission. Boy, was I wrong. He's got Oscars all over him on this one. I mean, look, the guy is, is a Hollywood character. Yes, he, is. he, he knows lives the here. Scene. He does yeah. live here. So, um, so let's I actually talk ran about into a, him on a hike once. I actually know where he lives. <laughs> oh God, that's creepy. Don't tell him that when you see him around. <laughs> Fortunately, you won't have to. Um, another Netflix movie that we, that, um, I got a chance to see, I think we both got a chance to see recently life ahead. 
uh, oh, yeah. opening in a couple of weeks. So we should talk about that for a little bit because that's okay. a very so, different so kind Sophia of play. Okay, so Sophia Loren, um, Loren uh, the great Italian actress um, who won an Oscar for two women for Vittoria De Sica back, like back when 50 she was years very ago. young. Yeah. Um, she actually lived through World War II in Italy with her mom and her sister. And she brings a lot of that... Um, um, gravitas uh, to this role as a Holocaust survivor, Madame Rosa, who was played by Simone Signore um, in, in a Weinstein-backed uh, foreign language uh, nomination uh, back in the day. Uh, she So Lorraine really runs with it. She's fantastic. The movie has a certain naturalistic, straightforward, well-told story. Uh, uh, you know, her son, Eduardo Ponti, uh, did, did a good, serious job with it. But you, in your review, correctly, I think, uh, put the spotlight on her co-star. Yeah, this young guy who's, who's this, I'd never really acted. I think he did a short film or something. Ibrahim Gaye, I think is the way you pronounce I don't it. Think, I, I don't think he's ever acted. Yeah, he's a real discovery. I mean, he's... Uh, it, she, I think she's solid, and the movie is is very solid and, and kind of familiar. Let's remember not, that know, she's eighty six years yeah. old. So no, it's a fine performance. It didn't bother me, and I, there was there's no showboating in it, which it, which I appreciate considering that it is you know a very specific category of movie with a, a sentimental it's a heart tugger. to it. It is designed but, uh, to be a but heart yeah. tugger. But this kid, you know, Ibrahima is amazing because he is. Uh, you know, this he's playing the street kid who's like divided between, you know, the easy life of crime and like trying to get his act together. And there are just scenes where he's just like running around, you know, on an e-bike or going to a dance party or whatever, where he just feels like he's totally in the moment. That's a real kind of stars born kind of performance that I think uh, more people should be aware of because he holds that he keeps that movie going. He's in almost every scene. Or maybe he so isn't. One, I didn't count. one of the things that's going on uh, this year, as everyone knows, is that a lot of the big studio movies are dropping out. So, uh, in the Best Actress race, for example, um, Sophia Loren would have been vying for a slot against Jennifer Hudson, who is on the cover of Entertainment Weekly with a huge, huge feature <laughs> about the Aretha Franklin movie Respect. <laughs> Which, you Works. know, you know, I know I used to work at EW and for they must it's all hard. be really crying in their beer because that's a big lost opportunity. Really, uh, this movie, yeah, you can't redo it later yeah. until next year. You know, And and they pushed it all the way back. So so that's another one that, you know, let's see what happens with the United States uh, versus Billy Holiday with Andrew J. Uh, let's see what happens. Uh, the studio movies are the ones that are dropping out, the ones that are expensive, the ones that have to make their money back in theaters. And, when, you know, if they push them back, they're waiting for theaters to, to get back to life again. And if they go to streaming, then they can buy for the Oscar, actually. But respect is off the list. So that it's, gives Sophia Lauren a better shot at the slot. I, I could see it happening, especially with Netflix promoting. I mean, the movie is it's funny because I would see this movie in another, you know, a couple of years ago. It would be like a Sony Classics kind of platform. Release. Yeah. Sure. Playing to an older audience, you know, that you know knows who she is and, and likes this kind of movie experience. But 
still be a, a you know more of a challenge to campaign for her and this year really seems like they could get that in there so that makes a lot of sense that they would do that um and the, the other thing we should discuss in terms of uh dates and things being moved around is the news we got out of can which is basically saying that it has three contingency plans for next year which is fascinating because basically what it means is that they they could go in May, but unlike last year where it was just a constant stop and start, they've they've set a timeline for when else they could happen. They could happen in mid-August or they could happen in July. So what does that mean for the films that we think might go to Cannes that have been waiting for Cannes, like say the French Dispatch or whatever? Do they travel with those dates next year if you know the May event can't happen, or do they have to, you know, keep changing things up. It's going to be fascinating to see where we're at at that point in time, because now they're ready for this weird situation as opposed to last year where nobody saw it coming and can kept can held on. You got to give them credit for something. They, they really wanted to make that festival happen and no matter what. Well, we could look at this a different way. We could say that both can and Telluride were so invested in having a physical film festival in real life with people showing up at their towns that they did not pursue uh, the digital alternative that was adopted by um, Toronto and New York and, and London and everybody. I mean, everyone else has gone, you know, at least with a hybrid model um, and so that's what I find uh, interesting about that. They, 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 I mean, South by was caught at, you know, with their pants down right at the moment that they were about to start. There was nothing they could have done, but Canon had time. And so to tell you, right, to plan. Yeah, and South by did end up figuring out how to do some aspect. They gave an award out. You that's know, true. For, for grand jury prizes they did. and stuff. I mean, they, they did figure things out. Can didn't do that. It just announced a lineup. And they figured out uh, a, a, a po they did figure out a way to show some of the films online, which was right. which was at the time and then a few, and controversial. And then yeah. they're they're doing like a special three day thing. And Thierry Fromeau, who we've had on the podcast, had his Lyon Festival and the Lumiere Festival. You know, had the Dardennes as special guests and stuff. So they're they're figuring out ways of of. Pulling oh, they, in off. France, they've been moving the the selection around and showing it at different festivals. Yeah, and, you know, they've been doing San that Sebastian all, all and stuff. for the past few months. Yeah, yeah, but now France is in. I mean, Europe, unfortunately, is seeing some serious spikes. So that it and does so raise questions. Yep, yep. So speaking of terrifying times, let's close out by talking about Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> Could there be so, a better moment? <laughs> oh my God. All right. So I um, have a Halloween recommendation for everyone who has, um, I'm sure many of our, our, our listeners have seen this movie, but some, you know, it's an old movie. So maybe there are some who missed it. I want to say that one of the scariest movies I've ever seen in my life is Oni Baba, which is a mm. 1964 Japanese classic. Um, and it is on Amazon. I believe it's on Criterion uh, as well. And uh, it was inc incredibly influential on a lot of other filmmakers. And when you see it, you'll see you'll see why. That's a really good recommendation. I mean, it's always fun to try to figure out what are the classic horror movies that actually remain scary down the line. I mean, there's stuff that you go back and you're sort of like, I can see why that would have been terrifying, you know, in 1933 or whatever. But with time, it loses that 
impact. I like those old Val Luton movies like Cat People and stuff Absolutely. where the jump scares still hit. I Walk with the Zombies, one of my favorites. It's just so, so spooky, you know, in I a way Jacques that I think. Turner. Yeah, Turner yeah. is an amazing yeah. filmmaker. There's a movie that came out earlier this year, not a lot of people saw, but I, but I recommend checking out if you want to watch a, a, a 2020 release called Come to Daddy, which stars Elijah Wood with this really goofy mustache as a guy who goes to visit his uh, estranged father in the countryside. And the person he discovers there is not who he expected to find. And I don't want to spoil it any more than that. But if you watch the trailer, it is kind of a, a weird horror comedy. It's um, it's a New Zealand film, a New Zealand director named Ant Timpson. It's his first feature, but he's produced a lot of stuff. And it's got that kind of early Peter Jackson quality to it where it's kind of silly in times, but then it gets re- it can get really scary. And Elijah Wood is, uh, I think these days, kind of underrated. He does really cool performances that don't always get talked about. So that's my Halloween recommendation. And I just want to say, I think that there is actually a real value in embracing the Halloween spirit on Saturday when, when it is October 31st in the sense that, you know, remember when getting scared was cathartic and like, be, and be, you know, be allowing you to distract yourself from the world on some level. We shouldn't lose touch of the ability to, to have scary experiences as a source of entertainment and escapism, as opposed to just living in existential fear all the time. And so th- there is still value in doing that. And I hope that, um, I hope that you have this some fun This is one on time when <laughs> I will agree that you should all pay attention to Professor Cohn who does teach cinema at NYU, um, do, do, do uh, enjoy Halloween. Um, and uh, oh, Oni Bob is also on HBO Max. Oh, well, there you go. Easy, easy. So yeah, let's do that. You know what that. else is a good double feature that you could tr- that would be fun to do is is the original Cat People and then the Paul Schrader Cat. The Schrader people. one. That's, that's a, a good weird one. one. <laughs> that's fun. Yeah, that's true. Not a lot of people have seen that one. Um, so yeah, so a lot of good options there. Next week we will be hopefully living in a post-election world, and um, I don't know what the movie world's going to offer up to us, but I'm sure we'll have some more reasons to dig deeper on Mank, among many other things. So, and I know you already voted, I already voted, but there are still a few days left. So people who don't um, have their ballots in yet, please vote. Have a plan to vote. Tell people to vote. Go it's okay vote in for person. To, it's too late for yeah, the do mail. It. Don't mail it. Don't mail it. That's what I mean. Make a real plan that works. And and honestly, I do think, I mean, I, I've said this before, I've been calling voters left and right. It, it does make a difference to tell people because if everybody's making some effort to communicate that to people in their inner circle in a year like this, every bit's going to make a difference. And we'll see where we're at on, uh, on Wednesday. So, and enjoy your weekend. Try to forget the existential dread all around us for just a little bit. And uh, looking forward to doing this again next week. Okie dokie. Bye Eric.